Welcome to the Hannah Miller Show. And here she is, Hannah Miller. Outspokenly conservative and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller, and this is what happened this week. So the very first story that I want to cover today is about Afghanistan. We had the one-year anniversary of the Afghanistan withdrawal. I want to talk about that a little bit, and then we're going to talk about the Eliza Fletcher story that happened this week. And so those are the two big things we're going to cover. So it's been a year since the disastrous pullout from Afghanistan, and we now have a more complete picture of just how badly that situation was handled. That truth was revealed in an interim report on the withdrawal from the GOP side of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And their report, as our court Kirkwood said, it is unsparing, it is eye-opening, it isn't surprising. So this was a 115-page report. It was released mid-August and reveals just how badly Biden and his, his administration really blew it. Most of us realize, or have realized, the result of that withdrawal was global embarrassment, the loss of more than $7 billion worth of U.S. military equipment to the Taliban, and most importantly, the loss of American lives. And the only appropriate remedy is impeachment. And that our court Kirkwood made that statement in an article recently, and I agree with him on that. And he did, he provided a recent analysis of the report. And the report is 115 pages. Obviously, I'm not going to go through all of that. Uh, Kirkwood also does a great job on the analysis of the report. Uh, you can read that if you'd like that whole article. His his last his name is R Court C O R T Kirkwood. K-I-R-K-W-O-O-D, if you'd like to look up the article on this, on the report, um, because I'm not even going to, I'm going to summarize what he summarized, because trying to read all of the quotes back to you and all that is, it can get hard to follow. But basically, the report opens with the lies Biden himself told in August last year when he announced the withdrawal. So if you remember, Biden claimed that he consulted closely with our allies, partners, military leaders, intelligence personnel, diplomats, development experts, Congress, and the VP. That claim was false. And this report proves it. Our allies did not support an immediate withdrawal. General Nick Carter, who's Great Britain's defense chief, and the chairman of the uh, German Parliament's Foreign Relations Committee, Norbert Rotgen, both refuted Biden's claim. There are direct quotes in there from both of those men refuting Biden's statement that he had consulted with them. Furthermore, U.S. military advisors did not support completely leaving Afghanistan without even a small force of 2,500 troops. That was another statement that Biden, another claim that he made, that the military, that U.S. military advisors and personnel were in agreement with him, that if they were to remain in Afghanistan, they would have to leave a huge force. And he said, well, we're just going to get them. We're all in agreement that we just need to get everybody out. They actually told him the exact opposite. They recommended 2,500 troops remain in order to bolster the Afghan military and the 7,000 allied troops. And as we saw happen, 
the Allied troops were required to withdraw once the U.S. did, which was a major contributor to the total chaos of the Afghan withdrawal. So I'm not going to go through the entire list of weapons and uh, material that was lost, but that was another result of the hasty withdrawal, and that was, of course, the $7.12 billion worth of weapons and equipment. And as Kirkwood noted, quote, Biden's transgendered administration had no plan for removing or recovering that equipment and have turned the Taliban into a well-equipped force, at least until the equipment breaks down, end quote. So Kirkwood provides, he, he goes through the whole list of equipment that the Pentagon reported in April as being left behind. So you see the Pentagon, they reported all of this. They've laid, they laid out the whole $7.12 billion worth of weapons and equipment that was abandoned in Afghanistan. And Kirkwood provides that whole list. I won't go through all of it because it's hard to follow again via podcast. But let's just say it's egregious. And I'll tell you that the Taliban is not keeping all those weapons. They're turning a nice profit selling them in the markets and bazaars. And that's just what the Afghani people needed to bring unity and peace. Correct? Absolutely not. That just further contributes to what's going on right now in Afghanistan. Furthermore, another thing pointed out by, by this report, despite Biden's promises, not only did vetted Afghans with special immigrant visas not make it out of Afghanistan, but Biden actually ordered, and I quote, departing flights to be filled out with as many Afghans as possible, vetting regardless, and that U.S. officials managing the withdrawal should, quote, err on the side of excess, end quote. And the report continues, and I'm going to directly quote this part. This failure allowed Afghans who had derogatory information about them in the U.S. government's own files to be able to slip by the initial screening and reach the continental United States. A Pentagon Inspector General report from February 2022 found that 50 Afghans who had arrived in the U.S. during the evacuation had information about them in the Defense Department's databases that indicated they would present potentially significant security concerns. The report added that the U.S. government could only locate three of the Afghans who had derogatory information in their files and had arrived in the continental United States, and that some 28 other Afghans with similar such information in the databases could not be located. All in all, there's been about 100,000 Afghanis that have been welcomed into the United States out of Afghanistan amongst all of this chaos, and a lot of them unvetted, and it's a very dangerous situation. So the House report concluded with these words. The administration also misled the American public about the military advice President Biden had received regarding Afghanistan. In truth, the president chose to ignore the advice of his top military and diplomatic officials, as well as that of America's closest allies who sought to make the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan contingent on the Taliban taking real steps towards peace. End quote. Biden's own top people have called the Afghan withdrawal a strategic failure. Yet no one has been held accountable. Not only that, but they remain in positions of major authority, making life and death decisions on behalf of our service men and women. 
of which they have clearly demonstrated a significant level of incompetence. Look, we all know the person most accountable is Biden. But no one, except a Congress and Senate willing to impeach, convict, and remove him from office, can hold him accountable. Let me conclude with this, which is why I agree with Kirkwood that Biden is impeachable. Not only does this House report suggest a myriad of impeachable offenses, including illegal obstruction of U.S. investigators by being unwilling to work with them regarding this report, that Biden has also aided and abetted an illegal alien invasion of the United States at the southern border. And we have talked about that multiple times on this show. These verifiable, irrefutable facts should end Biden's presidency. Should Republicans take control of Capitol Hill in January after November's midterm elections? Of course, those Republicans will have to have some kind of political backbone and a whole lot more than most of them demonstrate right now. And you know how they get a political backbone? By you and I holding their feet to the fire. As my daddy likes to say, politicians never see the light until they feel the heat. And you and I, we're the heat, baby. That's us. This is Bob, the producer of The Hannah Miller Show. Hannah and I would like to thank you for subscribing, favoriting, sharing, liking, and everything else you can do for a podcast that makes this podcast so successful. As you probably know, Hannah and I are both based out of South Carolina. I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll find very enjoyable and educational. It's called South Carolina Politics. The topics on this show range from county council and school board all the way up to the governor. Interviews, opinions, discussions, updates, and a lot more. So check it out wherever you find your podcasts. It's called South Carolina Politics. All right, let's dive into this story about Eliza Fletcher. I'm going to give a brief review of what happened. Um, we're going to talk about Abstin's criminal record, why his record is important, and then I'm going to give some final thoughts regarding the whole situation. So if you haven't heard exactly what happened, let me give a recap for you. So 34-year-old Eliza Fletcher, a married mother of two and teacher at St. Mary's Episcopal Church in, uh, School in Memphis, excuse me, was abducted last Friday morning while out for a dawn jog and subsequently murdered. Her body was found about seven miles from the crime scene, where on Friday police found her water bottle and smashed cell phone. The DNA of Cleotha Abston Henderson, 38, was reportedly found on a pair of shoes left at the crime scene near the University of Memphis. His GMC terrain also matched the vehicle seen in the surveillance video that captured Fletcher's abduction. Abston was seen cleaning the interior of the vehicle and washing his clothes in a sink shortly after Fletcher's abduction, according to witnesses, one of whom is Abston's brother. Monday's search reportedly focused on an area not far from Abston's brother's home, and a dumpster police towed away for evidence on Saturday. On Sunday, Memphis police arrested Abston and charged him with first-degree murder, premeditated murder, murder in perpetration of kidnapping, and tampering with evidence. He was also arraigned on charges of identity theft for allegedly stealing another woman's wallet the previous day. Unrelated, but... And according to the police affidavit, Abston ambushed Fletcher while she was jogging last Friday morning near the University of Memphis campus, forced her into his car, and seriously injured her. 
The details of her death are still unclear, but authorities found her body behind a Memphis apartment building on Tuesday. So this all happened between Friday morning, early morning. She was on a jog. She was going for a jog at dawn to on Tuesday. Her body was found by authorities behind uh, an apartment building. So that's the that's the summary. I just kind of summed up the story and what happened here. Let's talk about Abstin's criminal record, and then I'm going to talk about why it's important. So who is this guy? Daniel Horowitz provided an excellent summation of Abstin's criminal record in an article he wrote this week. You can also find information at the Daily Wire and a lot of other places. So typically, though, if someone commits a kidnapping, it means he's likely done it before. And Abstin's record bears that out. In 2000, Shelby County, Tennessee, charged him with especially aggravated kidnapping for carjacking Kemper Durand and stuffing him into his trunk at knife point for two hours until the victim escaped while the vehicle was stopped at an ATM. He entered a guilty plea and received 24 years in prison starting in November of 2001. He was also charged with aggravated kidnapping for which he was sentenced to 11 years. But not only were the two sentences concurrent, he was released after 85% of the 24 years. And he was released from prison November 7th of 2020. Incidentally, as Horowitz pointed out, Tennessee has a new law which requires violent criminals to serve 100% of their sentences. So if Abstin, if this law had been in place just two years ago, Abstin would not have been been released when he was because he'd only served 85% of the 24 years. But Abstin's record doesn't stop there. Although the sentence was not egregiously lenient, which there are a lot of sentences that are, local media reports that Abstin had a lengthy record as a juvenile prior to the 2000 carjacking and kidnapping. The Commercial Appeal reported that Abstin also appeared in juvenile court records in 1996, 97, 98, and 99 for charges including theft, aggravated assault, aggravated assault with a weapon, and rape. WREG reports that Abstin was arrested every few months from the time he was 11. And even for the rape and aggravated assault charges, he only served a short period of time in juvenile detention despite his file listing him as 100% violent. So why is all this important? Because, as Horowitz pointed out, this leniency is the rule, not the exception throughout the justice system, and it needs to change. End quote. And I know that that's a big statement to make, and I'm going to compile a information and provide you all with a full podcast later on with defending that statement. Daniel Horowitz has done, he's done some of the best research on the criminal justice system in the United States. And I would highly suggest that you either follow his podcast, The Conservative Review, or find his writings on this topic and start researching them and reading them because he has done his research and he knows what he's talking about. Uh, he, he does his research on the immigration issue and 
crime, the justice system in the United States, mostly because those two issues are generally uh, illegal immigration and the justice system are really intertwined. And so he has a lot of knowledge on this and has been researching it for quite a number of years. But he, he made the point that even model citizens and military veterans were held without bail because of their political activities on January 6th. Yet these criminals, like Abstin, somehow escape the long reach of Big Brother when it comes to bad behavior post-release. He's exactly right. And I don't I don't like to get into this whole thing about, well, well they don't, you know, it's they're they're not fair to us. They don't treat us fair and, and just look at what they do with us and then what they do with their guys. Look, we know that that's happening and I'm not going to belabor it. Okay? It's just whining. <laughs> if you're not going to do something about it, it's just whining, okay? And we know the facts. We know that this is true. So get out there and do something about it and stop complaining, okay? I don't like these guys who just, they just want to own the libs and they just want to point these injustices out, these hypocrisies all of the time. And they just say, well, 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 they don't, they treat us really mean and they don't treat their own guys. Well, of course they don't. Nah, duh. That's, and, and so I'm not going to belabor that. But my point with this is that Big Brother can do something. You see, we tend to think, well, they were released, they're not following them, they're not. Look, the way that they have treated and pursued the January 6th folks and model citizens demonstrates to us that they can follow these guys, that they can bring justice to them for bad behavior post-release. So Horowitz, again, done some of the best research. He recommends that for the eight most violent crimes, all juveniles should be charged as adults. And that someone engaging in that activity, including rape at such a young age, is not a candidate for rehabilitation. Furthermore, Horowitz recommends a clear three strikes and you're out policy to mandate life in prison for anyone who commits three violent felonies whether as a minor or as an adult. Violent crime should never be tolerated. And after someone is given a second chance and follows it up with a violent crime, as Horowitz said, he is clearly incorrigible. That is very true. And we, ha we have too much leniency in our justice system in situations such as this. And then we have some drug crimes and other crimes where there's... It's way too harsh. We have got to reform our justice system. And one final comment about Abstin's record. According to prison records obtained by the Blaze, his criminal record reveals several instances of illegal drug possession, indecent exposure, tampering with security, and possession of a deadly weapon within the final years of his prison sentence. Do you hear what I'm telling you? This man was still in prison doing these kinds of things, yet he still somehow received 511 days of credit, demonstrating the absurdity of the good time credit system. So what are my final thoughts? Three things to say about this. I have three things to say about this, and I want you to hear me when I say all of them. Don't pick one of them and ignore the others. These three points all go together. One of them is probably going to make you mad. One, <laughs> the first one, 
people who commit terrible crimes should be punished terribly. Assuming all the evidence to be uncovered is as clear as the preliminary evidence and Abstin is convicted of premeditated murder, Abstin deserves the death penalty post-haste. The only way to direct people's behavior is by consequences. We covered this just two weeks ago. Good behavior leads to good consequences, and bad behavior leads to bad consequences. And as every person who has ever worked with children or people in general or even animals knows, consequences have the most impact when they quickly follow the particular behavior. I speak from, from experience as someone who has trained horses and dogs, who is currently raising children, and who works with all kinds of people in the counseling room. Consequences provide the most benefit when they are comparable to the behavior and quickly follow the behavior. For example, when one of my children recently violated a family rule regarding how much time she was allowed on an electronic device, her punishment was to be immediately grounded from technology entirely for a week. It was comparable to the bad, bad behavior, and it was immediate. I was once given an example of when I was in summer camp. Oh, I was I was actually staff at a summer camp, and we were in training, and our our class teacher talked about how he had a counselor one time. There was a little boy who they're not supposed to throw rocks, and he kept throwing the rocks, kept throwing, wasn't listening to the counselor, and the counselor just gave empty threat after empty threat, and then finally was like, "If you throw those rocks over in that field one more time, I'm going to make you move them with your mouth. I'm going to make you pick them up in your mouth and put them back." Well, of course. He wasn't going to do that. He couldn't do that. He didn't have the authority to do that. On the other hand, when my children do something that is, when they have good behavior, I am, I try to be very quick to encourage them and to applaud them and to recognize verbally when they have treated someone well, when they have obeyed a hard family rule that we have or, or something that I know for them is hard to either a rule that's hard to abide by or, a, you know, a chore that's difficult for them to do, or maybe they just took initiative for something. I try to be very careful that I celebrate those things with them and I encourage them in that way, making good consequences for good behavior, creating good consequences for good behavior. Lots of praises, lots of affirmation when I see those kinds of good behavior. When the consequences for bad behavior are not immediate nor comparable, they lose significance. And furthermore, when bad behavior is rewarded with good consequences, such as in the case of Abstin and the good time credit system, then we have really destroyed the integrity of our justice system. So my point, people who commit terrible crimes should be punished terribly post-haste. Number two. Ooh, probably going to get in some heat for this one. We do not live in utopia. This is a bit of a pet peeve for me. Every time something like this happens, women fall all over themselves on social media going on and on about how they should be able to basically do whatever they want. They should be able to run in the dark alone. They should get an Uber at 2 a.m. while passing out drunk and dress like a hooker and not have anything bad happen to them. All manner of things. Let's be for real with one another for just a second. While I would like for all of those things to be true, that you can, you know, walk down the street totally naked and not have anyone look at you lustfully, because I have literally heard women say that that they should be able to do that. Well, well, that would be great. 
Sure, I agree. There should be no sin. There should We should live in a perfect world. The reality is we do not live in a perfect world. We do not live in utopia. There will be sin until Jesus comes back. Just like men should be careful about being alone with women for fear of false accusations or fear of temptation or all manner of things, women should be careful about being alone where unknown men lurk about because we live in a fallen world. Look, this is all I'm saying, and hear me say this loud and clear. We should be wise about where we go when we are alone. And why do I say that? When I say that, when I say that we should be wise about where we go when we are alone, especially as women, I am not victim shaming because that's what everybody, everybody comes out at me. You're victim shaming. You're victim shaming. I am trying to keep other potential victims alive. You hear me when I say that? I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm trying to tell you the world is dangerous. And you can't just do whatever you want, whenever you want, wearing whatever you want, passing out drunk. That was not the case with Eliza Fletcher. She was on an early morning jog. But there have been other instances where these kinds of things, where women just put themselves in very vulnerable positions and a tragedy happens. And while I wish those things didn't happen, and while I wish that we did not live in a world like that, the reality is, is that we do. And so we need to be wise and discerning. And number three, victims, men or women, no matter the wise or unwise choices they made that made them vulnerable, deserve comparable and quick justice and the full scope of our compassion. Those two things go hand in hand. Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Says it right there. All right, I would be remiss not to close out today's show by not addressing the fact that Queen Elizabeth passed away this week on Thursday, and there's been a lot of commentary, there's been a lot of articles already written about it. I'm not going to add to all of those things, but I will I will just say this. I ran across this uh, this quote and I don't know, I don't know if she's a believer in in her heart she proclaimed to be. And it seems that she was a genuine believer, but of course only the the Lord knows the heart. But Hayden Robinson reminded all of us in this quote of what is true of all of us. And this is this is the quote. At the end of the chess game, all pieces go into the same box. Common pawns and brave knights, bishops and kings. So also in life and death for all of us. The queen has met the king. That's very true. And I pray that she was ready to meet her maker. I pray that she was ready to, to meet the king. And I pray that you are. And it's a good thing every day to start and end our day with making sure that our hearts are ready to meet the King because it can happen in a moment. Hope you have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to The Hannah Miller Show. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. If you'd like to find out more about Hannah or to schedule her for a speaking event, go to her website, thehannamillershow.com.